And this morning, I'm just saying, Lord will uh, have his way with this message, and he will have me speak exactly what you need to hear. There's, there's a large chunk of this text that I'm going to try and get through today. And I say try because um, if, you, if you know that I like to bring everything out of the text, and that's just not the, 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 the part of the text that we're in. And so we're going to we're try to cover um, 20 verses this morning. And um, so I, this is your reminder that Acts is a descriptive record, a, a narrative record of what the early church did as it expanded and grew and how the Holy Spirit um, used uh, the apostles to, to grow the church and, and to advance the gospel. And so this is um, just sort of a reminder to you that, um, that, that it's not a prescriptive thing that we're given so that we like read Acts and then we read that something happened and we say, well, how do we, you know, how do we recreate that thing so that will happen for us? Um, it, it, it doesn't work that way. And so um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the meat on the front end, uh, which I, I generally do start out with like a thesis and, and then I prove that thesis and then I kind of give you an application at the end. This morning, I'm giving you all of the equipment so that as I read the narrative, I won't do as much stop and go during the narrative, just like some, some observations, but I've equipped you with everything that you need to kind of like, as we stop and take note, you go, oh yeah, I see how that's true about this particular moment. Okay? Is, is that fair? Nah, you guys don't sound convinced it's fair, but it's as fair as I can be. So, um, okay. So if you, weren't, if you weren't with us last week, the introduction was essentially this. Like, um, there, there's a spiritual war that, that we are engaged with. And um, uh, Ephesians, who, um, where Paul is right now is in Ephesus. And so he writes the Ephesians later. And um, he says this. Look, we do not wrestle with, uh, with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so last week, we, we just merely dealt with the reality of, of spiritual dominion. Meaning, when, when you make choices, when you are um, using the will of the you, uh, the, when I say you, the being that is you, that is um, making a spiritual decision. And, and so we bind ourselves to the desires that we fulfill. And, and so all humans are essentially this. We are made to worship God and we're, we're meant to fulfill our desires and find our fulfillment in God. So if you want to look at it this way or think about it this way, all humans have a God-shaped hole in their soul. Okay? And we've covered idolatry in depth in, in, during Exodus, and we've hit it a few times in Acts. And so while this text appears to be primarily about idolatry, I don't want to spend all of our time talking about idolatry again. So if, if you've forgotten what that means, um, here's the basic summation. Idolatry is all of the, the stuff that we cram into that hole instead of God. Idolatry is all of the stuff that you cram into the God-shaped hole in your soul to try and fill it with something. Okay? And when you think about the, the reality of spiritual dominion, um, we tend to think of something like, I'm enslaved to this particular sin. But that would be like getting arrested and saying, I'm enslaved to handcuffs. You're not enslaved to handcuffs. You are enslaved to the authority that put those handcuffs on you. Does that make sense? Okay? So, so the handcuffs are just this manifestation of a particular thing. So if, if addiction is the problem and, and drugs happen to be the handcuffs, that's not really what you're enslaved to. You're not enslaved to, to drugs. You're enslaved to this need to fulfill or, or feel a certain way. That you, you don't feel complete, you don't feel whole, you don't feel happy, something like that. And that desire within you, 
you're looking for something, you're grasping at something, and you find that something, you've laid hold of it, and it's drugs. And so you handcuff yourself to that. That's spiritual dominion. Are, are we tracking with where we ended last week? Well, Paul goes on to say, look, there, there's this battle going on, and that wrestle with us is that we have this spiritual tug, if we're born again, that we ought to do the right thing, and yet we, we battle the flesh, and it's continually pulling us to try and fulfill desires in, in selfish ways. And he, he seems to work up into this hierarchy then of powers and authorities, in, in which case we go, well, how do we address those things? And so I want to um, start out this morning um, rooting your ideas about how do, you wage, how do you wage war against the flesh at all, or how do you wage a spiritual battle at all? It does not start with um, behavioral modification, okay? So if you look at it and you say, my problem is these stupid handcuffs, or my problem is the, these drugs, or my problem is pornography, or something like that, you're going to um, try to pluck this, um, the, you know, the dandelion head off, but not get to the root of it. And the root of it is the desire, okay? And, and desires are only fixed in, in being born again. And what we've been told in this particular section of Acts, we're in Acts chapter 19, if you want to flip there preemptively, Acts 19, and, and we'll be in um, verse 20, but I, t- verse 20 this morning um, will set the stage for us. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord, when it, when it increases, not just in the church or not just in society, these kind of, um, you know, nameless, faceless things, it increases in individuals. When, when the word of the Lord grows in your heart, when the spirit of the Lord grows inside of you, well, then you start to cast off sin and kill sin. And that's exactly what we see happening in the church. In Ephesus, they, they, they grow and the word of the Lord is prevailing and we see them burning their, their magical books and, and their great cost. And so we see that that's the measurement then of whether or not the word of the Lord is increasing. Is sin decreasing? Is the light of the gospel increasing individually in us? And then collectively, that happens more and more. And then we, we begin to see greater increases. It's not just your personal holiness that increases. It's not just the light of your testimony, but that it grows even more and outside of that so that the church becomes this, this dramatic presence where it actually affects the culture that's around it. And that's, that's the moment that we're looking at in Acts this morning that the word of the Lord has increased in such a way individually among the believers, the gospel is prevailing, the light of that is shining into the dark places of culture and it's having dramatic effects. So contending for the faith does not start with trying to point out particular sins or egregious things or, or places where you think spiritual dominion is having its greatest effect and saying, we're gonna, we're gonna attack that and try to defeat it. And Paul's reminding us that you don't defeat it by you know, having some physical engagement with it by, by uh, trying to, to wield yourself against it in, in worldly ways or in fleshly ways. So Christianity does not advance through any worldly means. I'll say that again and I'll clarify it. Christianity, the gospel, will not advance. We will not have any effect on culture. We'll not see any increase by, by worldly methods, which means if you try to seize power, you try to seize protection, you try to seize prosperity, you try to seize anything with a P word that fits into a worldly, worldly idea, it's not going to avail you of anything in the spiritual realm. Instead, Christianity advances individually as the word of God increases in us. So life change is happening. And contending for the faith doesn't mean that we just sort of duck down and we say, well, I'll just make sure that I'm concentrated on my particular path that I'm, I'm running here because that's all that matters. Um, 
We, we are called to engage in a battle. We, we have a battle to engage with, and we've been given weapons to, to uh, engage in that. Um, so I want to tell you a, a quick story here. Uh, this is St. Boniface, who lived uh, sometime in the, in the 700s. And um, there's a couple of different um, versions of this story. I'll go with the less spectacular version, but here's what you need to know. Uh, St. Boniface, as like a 30-year-old man, um, was sent as a missionary to uh, pre-Germany, or like the, the early Germanic tribes. And um, so they worshiped things like pagan deities. And he happened to be sent to a place where there was uh, a place, that was a, a particular tree called Donner's Oak. And Donner's Oak was famous because it was believed to be the place where um, Th- uh, Thor, or Zeus, excuse me, not Thor, Zeus had, um, had struck it with lightning, it lived, and so his presence was in this tree. So the pagans would come and they'd worship at the tree. And the, the, the um, aura or the idea around this tree was that if anybody touched the tree, that, that uh, Zeus would kill them. He'd strike them with lightning and they would die. Well, uh, as Boniface showed up and he saw that they were um, having these egregious sacrifices in pagan ways, he decided to contend with culture this way. He got an axe, he went out, and he laid that, that axe to the tree and he began chopping it down, much to the pagans' whore. But once they saw... That, that he wasn't struck dead, that there was no lightning, that Zeus didn't have some magical power. Um, so, so the more spectacular version of this story is that as soon as he laid the axe to the tree, lightning struck the tree, it broke into four equal pieces uh, that made the sign of the cross and all the pagans there laid prostrate and, and worshiped the Lord. I think that's the, the, the more spectacular version. I think what really happened is he chopped it down, they saw he didn't die, and, it, and he converted many because of that, because he's able then to share the gospel with them. So here's what it is. Every worldview that is exposed and, and examined must be responded to rightly. So, so for these pagans, uh, they, they believed that Zeus inhabited this tree and that they needed to show it respect and to, to sacrifice to it. Otherwise, that Zeus would kill them. And, and what Boniface did in contending with that is he showed them that that fear, that thing that was holding them captive was untrue. He, he demolished a worldview using, um, well, he put himself at risk, allegedly, for them, but he, he did uh, risk something of um, offending their culture, offending their way, but he showed that there was no power in it. So this is important because um, this is what Paul says uh, later on. So if you want to take the Ephesians 6 passage and then put this 1 Corinthians passage right after it, they kind of go hand in hand. Because he says, for though we walk in the flesh, so even though you and I are human beings and, and we're not waging war according to the world standards or, or by beating people up and telling them you must accept the Lord, right? So though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, but the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power. Now just stop for a second. If you have at any moment thought, well, I just need to keep my head down and, and make sure that I'm doing good and that's all that matters, this, this passage says no. No, you are in a battle and you're given weapons. Weapons are offensive, not defensive, by the way, right? Armor's defensive, but a weapon's offensive. You've been called to go on offense and and the offense has a purpose. It's not to kill people. It's not to demolish, um, you know, pagan temples, but it is to demolish the worldviews and the arguments that hold people captive, okay? So he says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that's raised against the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is this. That God is the only God. He is the holy God, and you owe him your worship. Christ is Lord. That declaration against any other worldview must be 
compared and examined. And once it's exposed, you have to respond to it. And that's what's happening in this moment in Ephesus. So I'm, I'm giving you the meat here, okay? So every worldview that's exposed to this truth, that Christ is Lord, must respond accordingly. So our job then is to expose pagan thoughts or lofty opinions or false ideas about this truth to that truth and, and expose them for what they are so that people are not held captive. So the other metaphor that's frequently used for this is, look, people, unbelievers, they're in the world and they're in the dark. They're blinded. They don't see the truth, but the light of Christ opens their eyes to that so that they can see what's true. And then once you've been transferred from darkness to light, you begin to understand the gospel. So our job as Christians, if you've already been, you've already been translated to that, your job is to shine light into dark places. That is what it means to contend. That is what it means to lay low every lofty argument and opinion that's raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, that truth that Christ is Lord, okay? So when things are seen for what they really are, we, we must live accordingly. And the last part of this is this. You have some sort of idea, some picture in your mind about what it means that there's a battle between God and the, and the forces of darkness in your mind. And in your mind, you're like, yeah, like, you know, maybe you have Jesus pictured and he's like muscled up like the Lord's Gym t-shirts. I don't know if you guys remember those, but Jesus was just jacked, you know? No? You guys don't remember those? The Lord's Gym and Jesus was just eight pack and swole. Anyway, okay, so here's the idea. You have some idea in your brain about Jesus and the devil are kind of like locked and they're kind of wrestling and like the devil's landing some blows and Jesus is landing some blows and you're pretty sure, like you know that Jesus is going to win, but there's like, you know, it's a pretty even match. That is woefully, woefully, woefully wrong. Okay? So um, really what you have is what you cannot see and do not care about is some pocket lint that I just pulled out of my pocket. This, is, this isn't even close to the comparison, but this is more like what the comparison is. Satan is nothing. The spirit, the spirit of darkness is nothing except for the credit and the power that you give it over you. We are never called to fear Satan. We are to fear what he does in deceiving us, and we empower him by giving him power over us. There's, there's no chance that I will lose a battle to the pocket lint, is there? No. There's no chance that Jesus is ever at Satan's mercy. So that, that's why Jesus' promise is so good. The, the gates of hell cannot prevail against the gospel going forward. So we are called to stand firm in that. Now here's what that calls us to. That means that we actually have to declare the whole truth and live by that same truth. And that's where things get sticky. We, we, can, we can declare some of the truth when it's comfortable. We declare the whole truth sometimes, but sometimes then we also have this hypocrisy within us where we're also not living by that same truth, which says that this truth that I'm telling you to live by really doesn't apply to me, which doesn't mean it's a truth at all, okay? So with those, with those ideas in mind this morning, let me pray for our, our walk through the word. Um, I will pray for my slowness and your fastness of hearing and my slowness of speaking, and uh, we'll um, see what the Lord would teach us through this text this morning. Father, I pray that you would use this time um, for um, our benefit and your glory, that you would speak um, only what um, you need us to hear this morning and nothing um, that I have to say. Father, you've called us to contend in a world 
where um, sometimes we, we have this idea that we're, we're, we're going to lose or mismatched. Or I, I just pray that you would use um, this, this, this day, this morning, and this word to um, encourage our hearts, to fill us with your spirit, to call us to um, be a people who are contending by the spirit um, for your truth in the world, and that we would see uh, much fruit as um, the gospel prevails. So, Father, keep me from error. I pray that uh, what's done and said this morning is pleasing to you. And um, so we ask that um, you would help us to hear um, your words. Um, give us eyes to see the beauty and the light that you shine in the world. Um, ears to hear your voice calling us forward. And hearts to receive spiritual truths. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, all right. So Acts 19. Um, I'm going to, I've already read you verse 20, which is the word of the Lord increased and prevailed. Um, Luke uses this phrase like three times in the book as like place markers. And it's, it's pointing us back to the origination point, the foundation that Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the whole, to, to the whole world. Take the gospel. And I'm going to give you empowerment to do that. And look, look Luke's trying to like, just pointing back occasionally. Look, not only is this what we're doing, but it's happening. So this is the last time, and there's a transition here in the text. And so verses um, 21 and uh, 22 are, are, seem to be just kind of like a weird insertion. And so I'll read them, but we're, we're not going to expand those um, this morning. But they're important to the narrative. And it just says this. Now, after these events, uh, that would be um, those of the burning of the the books. After these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and uh, Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, "After I have been there, I must also see Rome." And having uh, excuse me, and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So it's just simply essentially saying this. He has decided that he needed to go to Macedonia. He sent uh, Timothy and Erastus before him, but he's going to remain in Ephesus for a bit, okay? And, and it is this moment that we kind of zoom in again um, with uh, Luke on the narrative. So it says that um, uh, about that time, oh, let me get to the next one. There we go. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. So um, this is Luke's understated way of saying there was a full-blown riot. Mostly peaceful, riot. Mostly peaceful riots um, were happening around um, not a way, not an idea, not a suggestion, but the way, right? This is, again, the, the, what Christians were called, and it is a direct reference. It's capitalized if you have a, a decent translation of Scripture because it's a reference to Christ who said, I am the way. So it is those who are following exclusively Christ. And so around this idea and this declaration that God is the God and Christ is Lord, there arose a great disturbance. And so um, what is the source of that disturbance but this, that a man named Demetrius, he was a silversmith and he made silver shrines of Artemis. He brought no little business to the craftsmen. So this is uh, uh, Ephesus is uh, uh, one of the ancient cities. And what you need to know about it uh, in Rome, it kind of had its own independence in the sense that this, it was given the privilege of governing itself, um, sort of like Jerusalem had, where they could have um, sort of their own source of worship so long as things went 
well. Like they kept the peace and they paid the taxes. Rome said, you can govern yourselves. Well, one of the things that they did was um, they had this um, temple of Artemis and it was uh, built on and built on and built on. So over like the course of 120 years, it becomes one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And uh, I I don't really care to share the statistics because I don't really, I don't think they matter particularly to the message. But Artemis was... um, uh, the uh, same goddess as Diana. They were just one was Roman and one was Greek. And so they just changed the name accordingly. And um, she was the, um, the twin sister of Apollo. And here's the, the, the story or the myth that was behind that, that there was a, a meteor or uh, is it a meteor that comes and actually hits the earth? Right? A meteor versus an asteroid. A meteor had come and when it fell, it appeared like this woman who, as you can see, has some distinct features. And you can kind of get the sense of maybe what she was the goddess of, but she was the goddess of the hunt. She was the goddess of fertility. And um, so the the shrine that was built around her was magnificent. And so all of Ephesus not only uh, had this as their source of income, but it was just like common in everyday life. Everybody kind of just lived and breathed this truth that Artemis is uh, of the Ephesians, and Ephesians are synonymous with Artemis, and we just, we just do worship because that's part of what it means to be an Ephesian, okay? And so this, this man, Demetrius, he's a silversmith, and he's, he's been, um, he's kind of the uh, leader of a, of a guild, if you will, like not a union, but something like that, where he's gathered together these other craftsmen, and he's upset that these um, shrines that they're making um, are, are not uh, quite as popular as they used to be. So we gathered together with him the workmen in similar trades, so like silversmiths and, 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 and woodworkers and all the people that were kind of um, involved in this. And he said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Okay. So there's a couple things here. Um, first is this. It's not a problem until it's, it's a problem for you. Um, nobody cared about the way when it was just like this thing that showed up and, and it was a, a small impact. But as soon as it started impacting the economy and Demetrius in particular and the other craftsmen, then it became a problem. And the quickest way to find out uh, what, what somebody's sensitive about is to, to see where it touches their finances. And this is where it's touched the finances of the city. And so... Um, There's a guaranteed relationship between power, political clout, protection, prosperity, and and all kinds of false worship. When it it is touched on, you see that it's revealed on where people's allegiances really lie. And so you you can see that today as well, that as soon as it affects somebody's income, uh, we we find out where their their, um, truths lie, what they really hold fast to, and, and what they're willing to give up. For that. So what they're, what they're saying here is like, you, you see in here that not just here in Ephesus, but all of Asia has heard this truth that um, gods made with hands are not gods. Now, this is like a duh kind of truth to us. Like, well, duh, if you made it, it can't be a god. If you made it, it didn't make you, right? Is that, is that pretty, that's a pretty standard, low-level, low-lying, simple truth, right? Yeah, something like, you know, uh, God made them male and female. And if you're male, you can't be female. And you, female, you can't be male. Or that a child in the womb is actually alive. Like simple truths that might get you in trouble if you declare them. That's what's happened here. Gods made with hands aren't gods. This is what Paul said. He didn't attack Artemis. He didn't go outside the temple and, and revile people. He just simply asserted what was true. There's only one true and living God. And 
His, he came in the, the form of a man and servant in Christ Jesus, and he would preach that message, and that's the message, that simple truth that got him in trouble. And so this morning, it's, you need to know that uh, it's the small and simple truths that we have to hold fast to, and those are the ones that we seem to get into the most trouble for. So he's, he said that this, this thing has not just happened here in Ephesus, but now it's, it's kind of sprinkling out into Asia. And so the problem isn't just that the local patrons are not coming anymore and they're not buying the, the souvenirs and the things, but the people are actually saying, well, why do I even need to go to the temple if Artemis isn't really a god? And so the, he's actually impacting the, the, the false worship through a whole region. So simply by that, that first truth, that... that, that um, divine power for to lay low arguments and, and worldviews and opinions that are raised up against Christ. Some opinion like, well, Artemis is also a god. All, all Paul has to say is, well, gods made with hands aren't gods. And, and so um, I won't belabor that further, but um, the point is this. Um, he, he's just saying what they probably should naturally know, but everybody was sort of going along with it because um, it wasn't exclusive. There was a pantheon of gods. If you needed something, you could find, uh, you know, you just go to the cupboard of gods and you find the god to scratch that particular itch. And so Artemis just happened to be one that was over this particular area. And if you needed something else, you went somewhere else. But the thing about saying Christ is Lord and God is the only God is that he, he claims dominion over all of those things. And so now you suddenly have a conflict, right? There's, there's, there's a problem. There's going to be contention about those that have surrounded themselves and are living off of the false worship and the, um, the dominion of those people under that, that dark worldview. And he says, so um, this is Demetrius still speaking. He says, there, there's a danger that not only this trade of ours may come into disrepute, um, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may, she may even be deposed from her magnificence uh, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Um, this is funny because of the, uh, the flourishes and how um, just over the top it is. Like in, in terms of the idea that if something is really worthwhile, you don't have to shine it up that much, right? If it's really that great and so amazing, you don't have to sell it to anybody. It just is what it is. It is great and amazing. But here he is like, we're in danger of this thing actually being seen for what it is. And what's interesting about this is this word, uh, our trade may come into disrepute, really means it'll be examined in a critical way. Let me say that again. What he's really worried about is that people will examine what they're doing, which is building little shrines and little trinkets to sell to people on the back of the, the, the false worship of a false god. And he's worried that once people really examine that in light of gods made with hands are not gods, that their, their great goddess will be fallen into disrepute. And so they use this goddess as, and their, their um, sort of national pride as a way to kind of drum up some, some, some drama. Okay? And so it's simply saying, look, if this thing gets examined, we're going to be in trouble, but I'm going to use Artemis as um, sort of the, the, <laughs> the barrier, right? So it's, it's, it's really about the problem that it's affecting my bottom line, and I know it's also affecting yours, but we can use Artemis as sort of the wedge um, to, 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 um, to change this or, or to try and um, make headway against it. And so it says, when they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is just like a rote response. Um, it, it's like a, a cheer, a slogan, something that everybody would have known. And so it's just like, no, surely not. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Like, okay, so give me liberty or give me death. It's that kind of refrain. Are you, are you tracking with that? Okay. Mm, are you tracking with that? 
All right? So they're, they're responding out of what's ingrained in them. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. No, surely she won't be disrespected. So the city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions. These guys get lumped in. They can't find Paul for whatever reason, but they know Paul's sort of um, the, the point person. So they go like, those guys are with him. And so the, the idea is here is it's just a mad rush and things aren't going to go well. And they go into the theater, which is sort of like the center point of town. Uh, it's massive. This is um, something that still exists today. If you go to Ephesus, uh, it supposedly seats something like 45,000 people. And um, it's, it's magnificent. So they're, they're planning to sort of do like this public execution uh, of, uh, of Gaius and Aristarchus here because they seem to be the source of this problem. Okay, and so, um, but, but don't, don't miss that everything's filled with confusion. There's, there's not a lot of clarity about why we're doing this. We just know that we've been insulted and, and that potentially our way of life is not going to continue as it always has. It says, but when Paul um, wished to go in uh, among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. So, so get this. Um, they find his friends, and they're surely going to kill him. Like, they see that the, this has uh, reached like a fever pitch and a fervor. And, and so what's, what's happening here is Paul's like, this is perfect. We've got them all in one place. I'll go in there. I'll share the gospel. We'll convert them all, right? And they're like, Paul, I don't think you're reading the room, buddy. And so uh, they, they're like, no, you can't go in there. So what you need to know here is that the Asiarchs are not Asians. Um, they're, they are people of Asia, but they're like um, some, some, some kind of like town leaders, um, governors, like local kind of um, patrons that are in charge of um, just leadership. And, and so what Paul's actually, uh, what, what I, let me say it this way, what Luke has thrown in the narrative here is he's sort of showing how there's like different levels of leadership. And so we see like three or four different levels of leadership that are going to be part of this riot. And then we see like how Paul has kind of like affected things, not from the top down, but from the ground up, right? So he's not using political power. He's not using like um, any kind of like strategic, you know, means to, to wield his will. It's simply been this really grassroots, ground up, people being saved, word of God growing to, to, to affect these changes. And it's reached this particular level where these Asiarchs are able to say, look, Paul, you ought not to go in there. So they send word to Paul, look, your safety um, is paramount here, and so, so don't go in there. And so um, the Asiarchs, you just need to go there. Like a certain level of leadership, but they're definitely not top dog, okay? And so it, it's reached different levels that are at least strategic for, for God's kingdom, and they're able to at least prevent Paul from going in there. Now some cried out, now we're back to the crowd. Some cried out, one thing, and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. If you enter like any just demonstration on the street today, and you begin asking questions about the particulars of the issue, whatever it is that everybody's so fired up about, and you try to dig beneath, like, why do they actually think that? Almost, almost the, I'll, I'll just make up statistics, so I won't, okay? But if you've ever seen um, some of these like journalists, they'll go in and they'll just ask a question about like, hey, what do you think about this? Or did you know about that? And almost always they're, they're not informed, right? They just know something's going on and I need to be a part of that because um, I, I don't like it, right? I, so they, they've got the, the pejorative idea, uh, some stereotype, and we're just going to grasp onto emotion and fervor and confusion. We're all going to go down there and we're going we're gonna to make a difference, right? Regardless of what that difference is. And, and that's exactly what's happened. The assemblies in confusion, most of them don't know why they're together. And it, it actually means 
Now, most of them don't know on whose account. Like, are we, are we here because we're mad that somebody's going to attack us? Is, are we mad at Paul or his friends? Or like, so, so everybody's got a different reason to be there, but, but nobody's really um, congealed together or has a specific purpose in this moment. So it says, Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. Um, so he, uh, here's what's happened. Alexander is, is here, and he's among the crowd, and he's been pushed forward by some of his crew because he's going to sort of make an, an apology. Um, the Jews know what the source of this problem is. It's that there's, there's been an exclusive call to the worship of God. And here's um, the, the sad part about this. This should be something that the Jews agreed with right? They, they should have already said, no, you can't worship false gods. Like, that's not okay. But they were okay so long as they were okay, right? They, were, they, would, they would do the, the compatibility thing, the compromise thing. You let us worship here. We'll have our God. You have your God. And so long as you leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. And, and so Alexander is going to be kind of representative of that group. He's going to diffuse the situation. And, and so the, sort of his, his group puts him forward. Um, Alexander is Referred to later in Second um, Timothy, Paul says, um, this man, Alexander, did me much harm. And he said, may the Lord reward him uh, for exactly how he's lived and for what he said. And so this is um, just the appearance that he makes in Acts. But uh, behind the scenes, he's, he's apparently causing a, a lot of discord. And, and he says um, just confusing things to, to the church. And so anyway, he, they motioned him to go forward. But when, when the crowd recognized that he's a Jew... For about two hours, they all cried with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So for two hours, we love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. How about you? And then just back and forth and back, right? So this is the, you guys didn't go to camp if you don't know that chair, right? Louder, louder. Okay, everybody, just laryngitis on the floor. But so, so uh, they're just with this, this fever pitch. And it's all centered around, no, 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 we can't change anything. No, 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 Artemis surely cannot be brought down. And when uh, the town clerk had quieted the crowd, so now we have a, a new person set forward. So, so we had Alexander, who was like sort of the leader of the Jews. Uh, we had uh, Demetrius, who's sort of kind of the, the leader of the craftsman guild. And then we have um, the town clerk who, who steps forward. And he's really uh, the higher up. He's, he's the mayor, the governor, if you will. And he says, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that um, that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Now, um, I, remember I told you that the, 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 the myth around this was that Artemis had, had fallen from heaven, right? And so, so because it was given directly from heaven, surely it was God that gave Artemis to us and, and it looked like this, this woman. And so they put this statue in there. And so he's just affirming that there's no way that this could be contradicted. Everybody knows that this is exactly what happened and that Artemis really is a god. Um, and it, it, what's interesting about this is um, they, they've uh, archaeologically gone and they've kind of uncovered the temple and um, they've searched for this, this meteorite rock that allegedly was um, supposed to be this, this thing that fell from heaven and found out that it was wood. It was wood that was crafted to look like something that fell from heaven. There never was a meteorite. It was all myth all the time. And so they, they never had it on display. It was just in the temple. So here's the problem with this. He's, he's kind of using the cover-up to kind of maintain the status quo. And um, so he's, he's going to go on here to make an argument. And it might feel now at this moment that he is a friend to the Christians. Um, 
but that's not the case. So he, he says, everybody knows this. Um, we're, we're the temple, uh, excuse me, Artemis, and we are the, of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Um, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. And, and that's an important um, word there. He, he says, look, uh, I know you're upset. Um, He's doing a good job politicking here. He's like, let, let me defuse this situation. These guys are actually not saying anything in particular that blasphemes our goddess because they hadn't. They'd only said, likely, something like, gods made with hands aren't gods. There's only one God. And so he's sticking to that truth. And so he's just pointing out, look, they didn't come here and they're, they're, not, they're not temple robbers. They haven't stolen anything from us. Um, and so let's not be crazy here. Um, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers uh, of our goddess. And um, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen um, with him, if they have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls, okay? So now he's referencing there, there's people there, there's judges, and they can, they can figure out some things. And, and he knows that those people are in his pocket as well. Like they're going to do whatever they need to do to keep the peace. Why? Because Ephesus is, remember, this independent state where they want to maintain that, and he's going to do his best to maintain that. Let, let them bring the charges against one another there. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. Well, if you don't want to do it before the judges, then you can do it in whatever the normal um, town hall meetings are, and you can have the discussion there. So, for we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today. So there is, that's, that's um, the town clerk's true motivation. He's, he's in charge, and he's charged with a specific responsibility. And he, doesn't, he knows if he blows this, much like um, Pilate, Pilate was in charge of keeping the peace in Jerusalem. And he knows that if he doesn't do this, he's, he's in trouble. His head's on the line. This is the same thing happening in this moment. He's only looking for self-preservation. Um, for, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting, and that would be bad, because then Rome's going to come in, and they're going to um, lower the hammer. And so, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this kind of gathering, this kind of riot, um, so when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. He sends everybody home. And so, it seems as this, all this pitch and, and fervor has all come to nothing, and um, here's where I want to um, now refocus us, okay? So we, we walked through the whole narrative. We've made it, and I have a few minutes, okay? So the town clerk, Demetrius, I mean, nobody is actually on the side of Christianity here, but he's very interested in, in preserving himself because at the bottom of every worldview that is not Christ as Lord, it is, it is I am Lord. I am God. I'm, I'm after fulfillment for me. And that's what we started with. Every, every example of idolatry is, is you trying to procure something to fulfill the hole that only God, can, only God can fill and should rightly fill in your life. And so when you grasp at things and, and you avail yourself of something, this is kind of going back to last week, but you do that, you are saying, no, I'm going to um, control this situation. I'm going to um, get my desires in, by my own means. And um, where, uh, where we're called away from that is to say, well, uh, even if I don't have that thing, uh, I still submit to Christ as Lord. And this is where um, everything kind of comes back together for idolatry. Um, Jesus' is, uh, invitation to everyone is, come and follow me. Come and follow me. And the, the, um, 
The opposite of that is um, Satan's invitation to you goes something like this. Um, you should follow you. But in that invitation, he, he's actually saying you're, you're going to follow me. Because he's, he, he's, his deception is that everything in the world is mine to give you. It's not, but that's what he, he gets you to buy that lie. And so that when you do buy that lie, now you are partaking in the world system so that you, you think that you need protection. And so you, you look to something, and what Paul's going to go on, and just to go back to idols real quick, I, the idol is, is don't concentrate on the thing. It's not the, it's not the statue. It's not the wooden thing or the trinket. It's what's behind that. It's the desire behind it. So when, when you say, look, I, I don't feel right. I'm not okay if I, don't, if I don't have enough money to feel safe. And then your job becomes an idol. But, but the idol, the job isn't the problem. It's the thing behind it. It's that insecurity that you say, I'm not secure unless I have money, right? It's, it's I don't feel okay the idol becomes the feeling, but it's the, it's the disparity, it's the gaping hole in your heart that's really the problem. So the idol is really nothing, but the deception behind it is everything. The deception behind it is the demonic worldview. It's what you fall into. And, and that's the, the argument for Paul is to say, look, it's not that you know, food sacrificed to an idol is anything special. It's that when you do that, you're sacrificing it to a demon, he says. So that's the problem. And, and what we're meant to then tear down to, to, to wrap this whole thing up again is this. Our job is to contend against the world and those kinds of, of worldviews that have people trapped in darkness that say, well, I can't be okay unless I use this idol to get to this thing that I don't have. And so people are enslaved to that idea. I need this idol to, to get something, whether it's political power, whether it's protection, Provision. Like, so, so people are availing themselves of these things and they're doing it and they're just submitting to de- a demonic worldview and we're called to contend against that. And so I, I'm going to um, end this morning with some questions. So these are like application questions that you should, as we've been kind of walking through this, okay, well, I see how maybe this thing is happening in the world and, and it's not about the particular idol of Artemis. It's about what, what kind of things are people enslaved to because they're trying to fulfill this, this gaping hole in their heart. Am I, as a Christian, somebody that is able to legitimately call people away from that or am I engaging in the exact same thing? Right, it's not just, it's not just the problem of not saying what's true. It's not living what's true. It's, it's the whole truth and then living that truth. So would anybody in the world or the culture around us look at our church and feel threatened by anything that we do? They should. And, and our problem is that we want to be liked so much that we're, we're willing to compromise. We're more of an Alexander than we are a Paul sometimes. Like we, we, we want to have that symbiotic relationship. Just let us be and we won't, we won't say anything about the things that you're doing. But that's, that's not what we're called to do. We're called to contend. Jesus said it simply like this. No one lights a light and then puts it under a basket. You, you can't, if you're light, then you're light. And it needs to shine into dark places regardless of what consequences happen. So, so we're called um, to, to, to um, fight and contend in this world. And we do it not by um, 
by strength, we, not from a position of we're going to overpower you or we're going we're gonna, to you know, um, get the presidential office and then we're going to make all the laws or we're going to overthrow Congress or something like that. That would be to fight by worldly means. Instead, we are called to, in the weak things, in the foolish things of the world, to make, um, to, to make great um, progress. 1 Corinthians 127. I think I have it. No, I don't. I'll read it to you. 1 Corinthians 127. God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. He, he's using the things that, you, that are disregarded and thrown away by the world because they don't seem to be the means that people can use to get what they want. And he's using those exact means to accomplish all of the work that he wants to accomplish. And when we are unwilling to take the foolish things or the the, the weak things and and live on those, then we're never going to make any progress. Because we want to see we want to see, be seen as wise and we want to be seen as powerful. And so we, we make foolish compromises and then we, we cut our legs off and we can't make any progress. So will anybody in the world look at our church and feel like, are we exclusively um, saying that Christ is Lord and I, I'm not looking to other things? I'm not um, saying, you know, you shouldn't engage in this sin and that's an idol and, and yet I'm doing it myself. I'll say this and then this will be our, our transition for the morning. If we have too weak of a stomach and too much of a desire for the approval of, of man, we will never be willing to shine the light into the actual dark places. Boniface could have said, you know, these guys really believe this. If I cut down this tree, um, these guys could kill me. But you know what? You'd have to be willing to risk death to prove the truth. There is only one true and living God. And you're, you're held captive in this, in this dark, false ideology. And, and instead of being angry with the world, and condemning the world, and looking to blaspheme and revile the world, the gospel is not the nuke to destroy. The gospel is this supply drop of aid, right? It says, it says like, you, I'm, I want to bail you out of this situation that you in. You, there's, only, there's only one rescue, hope, and, and we do that, and it's like, it's got to penetrate, and it comes at great risk to us. So instead of like dropping a nuke, it's really like guerrilla warfare, and, and you go and you go into behind enemy lines and you, and you just live the truth and you are light and you are life to those that are dying and perishing. So that's the challenge this morning, to contend against the world by availing yourself of the means that we have so that we lay low every false argument and worldview that's raised up against the knowledge of God. Let's pray.